Let me uh, let me pick up in chapter ten, if I can. Let's uh, just a couple of you haven't been here for a while, so let me review where we are. Uh, chapter ten is the beginning of Saul's reign as king. Go back a week or two. Saul becomes the king. He's anointed as king by Samuel in a private anointing, then in a very public anointing, which again we talked about last week, and so on. And now that first test of his leadership is Nahash, who is an Ammonite, uh, attacks Jabez Gilead. Now again, I'm, I'm reviewing things, so if you don't remember that or don't recognize that, just read the other part of the chapter. And bottom line, without getting into the details, which we covered last week, it's successful. He frees Jabez Gilead from the, um, the threat of Nahash and, and all that was going on at that time. And it's, it's really, really important that you read verse 25 as, as we get in. Uh, or I'm sorry, I've already covered that in, in the end of verse 25. Because as Samuel anoints him, he writes the rights and duties of kingship. He lays them before the Lord, presumably in the tabernacle at Shiloh. Then chapter 11 is this first test of his leadership, of Saul's leadership as the king. And Nahash, who is an Ammonite, in other words, he's a Canaanite, that's kind of a general name, attacks Jabez Gilead, which, again, if you if you follow these things, you're interested in it, on page 7 is a colored map that I gave you in the packet. Jabez Gilead, here's the Dead Sea, the Bible doesn't call it that, the Sea of Arabah or the Sea of Salt, immediately to the north on the east side of the Jordan River. It goes back to why he's doing it. You've got to go back to the book of Judges, chapter 11. But he wants revenge. So he lays siege to this city, as all cities in the ancient world had wall around it, was fortified. He lays siege to it, and the people of Jabez Gilead said, we'll make a treaty with you. In effect, we'll surrender to you, but on some terms, we're going to negotiate. He says, here's the term. I'm going to gouge out the right eye of every man in the city. Well... <laughs> That's not a real great term for an agreement, is it? I'll make a treaty and stop seed, but I'm going to gouge out the eyes of every one of your men. Well, they they say, well, we're going to sleep on that. I'm being funny, but we're not going to agree to that yet. So they get a message to Saul. Saul's down in Gibeah. Again, you can find that on it. Gibeah is Saul's hometown, and that becomes the capital of the kingdom. And so they send messengers down to Gibeon. And what does Gibeon, what does Saul do at Gibeon? In verse 5, and this is where we left off. Verse 5 through 7, what he does as he's coming out of the field, it shows you nobody had ever been king before. He didn't know what, what was he doing. He was farming. <laughs> so he comes back with oxen. And it tells us in verse 6, this is an extremely important verse. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words about Jabez Gilead and so on. And his anger was greatly kindled. So he took an yoke of, yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of all of Israel by hand of the messenger, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Now, all of you reading this think, that's bizarre. You take an you start cutting animals and send pieces. That, I know that sounds un, un, absolutely untenable for you and me, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, that is often what you would do to alert people to a military need. And so he dispatches a piece of oxen, each one of the 12 tribes. There are tribal leaders, clan leaders, and so on. 
and says, you know how I'm mustering the army of Israel. Each one of you send men in, in, in this realm. We're going to deal with Jabesh Gilead, <clears throat> Nahash up at Jabesh Gilead. So do they respond? Yes, they respond. Verse 8, when he mustered them at Bezak, again, you can see that on the map. Bezak is exactly due west of Jabesh Gilead, approximately 16 miles. The people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. Now, I want you to notice something there. You're going to start seeing this. Judah is going to be singled out. And, it, and the author here of 1st M, the author does it here as well. You have 300,000 troops mustered from all the tribes. But one tribe that stands out is Judah, 30,000. Now, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, as you know, and Benjamin is a very small land ground just immediately north of Judah, and it's almost always associated with Judah. So it's, it's interesting. Why does the author do that? Because in Saul's reign and in his successor's reign, David's reign, they will always say, lay preference to Judah. And you might remember back in Genesis 49, I'm trying to draw a lot of threads from the Old Testament together here. When Jacob is blessing each one of his sons, he says to his son Judah, the scepter shall never depart from your tribe. Judah will always be the leadership tribe. And of course, uh, David is from the tribe of Judah, as is Solomon and so on. And who else is from the tribe of Judah? Jesus is. Jesus is from the tribe. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, I'm saying all that because the author is just singling out Judah, not because at this point, I'm not sure there's necessarily any leadership from Judah because Saul is from Benjamin. But he's just singling out. So we're going to keep our eye on that. How many times the author will separate Judah out <clears throat> for, for a notice? And then verse 9 and. He said to the messenger who had come, Thus you'll say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good. The next day Saul put the people in three companies. That's just a military division. They came into the midst of the camp of the Ammonites under Nahash in the morning watch, which would be sometime between 2 and 6 a.m. in the morning. So that's a strategic, tactical move militarily. He's catching the Ammonites by surprise, and it's successful. Struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. So it starts in the early morning and continues till past noon. When it says heat of the day, it means past noon. And those who survive are scattered so that no two of them were left together. It's an amazing victory for Saul. And so the first, if you will, the first test of his leadership is what's he going to do about this threat to Jabesh Gilead? Well, he mesters all the tribes to fight. He's successful in organizing in terms of tactics militarily, and it's a great victory. But notice also what happens in verse 2. Then the people said, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. But today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. It's, it's one of the very few times 
where Saul gives glory to the Lord. Because as we start chapter 13, which we'll get to in just a minute, I'm going to ask you a question. But this is a magnanimous comment on the part of Saul. It's a very important comment on the part of Saul. Because a number of people, you've got to go back to the previous couple of chapters, dissented on the choice of Saul. They didn't like Saul being chosen. Now, the leaders are saying, hey, those people who didn't want Saul to be king, bring them here, we're going to kill them, which is a horrible thing to do. But Saul stops that in his tracks, saying what? The Lord worked salvation. The Lord accomplished this. I want you to remember, we studied this two weeks ago. We looked back at Deuteronomy 17 and, and took that passage apart. God's, God's desire was for Israel to have a king. God's desire was for a king that would have qualifications and character traits that honored him. I phrased it, and this is the way it's phrased in the scriptures. The king is to be a shepherd king over my people. Shepherd them in justice and righteousness. He is to immerse his, his heart and his soul and his mind in my words. Write it down. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. He's not going to amass horses. He's not going to marry many wives. And he's not, he's not going to um, uh, seek to serve other gods. He will be loyal to me alone as he shepherds my people. Saul's doing that. Saul doesn't take credit for this. Saul doesn't elevate himself. He gives credit to the Lord. So this is one, only one, good stroke for Saul. You're not going to see any more. I'm going to ask you this question once we get to Samuel's farewell address here in a minute. What's the character flaw of Saul? I'm not going to answer that. I'm just going to pose that. But here you're encouraged. Look at verse 14. It's also a very important verse. And Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. Now, I'll remind you of something, and you can see that too on the map. Gilgal was kind of like the Valley Forge, Yorktown, Gettysburg, whatever valley you're in. That's where Joshua gathered the people after they crossed the Jordan. That's where the conquest of Canaan started. It was a holy site. It was a sacred site. So Samuel says, let's go to that sacred site and renew, what's the word say? Renew the kingdom. They're going to renew their vows, their commitments to the covenant. So, and this is, here again, you see this marvelous mixing in leadership between Saul's military and political leadership and Samuel's spiritual leadership. Because Samuel, what Samuel is doing here in verse 14 is calling, and that's, let's use another verb, leading a spiritual revival. We're going to renew our commitment to the Lord. Because as Saul has acknowledged correctly as the king, the Lord gave us this victory. Now Saul, Samuel says, okay, let's go to Gilgal. Let's go to that sacred place where all this started years and years and years ago. But, and let's renew our commitment to the Lord. And, and that's what too. It's, it's, a, it's a marvelous example. And David will do this so many times as the king, as, as we we have to get into Second Samuel to see that. How, how many times David will shepherd the people in this way? A great victory, then he gives he gives a great glory to the Lord and then uses it to facilitate spiritual renewal in the lives of the people. 
So it just says it. So all the people, this is the next verse, verse 15. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. There Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And so this, let me add something here about verse 15. Verse 15 is kind of like when, the, when King Charles III was, was coronated as king several months ago back in May, the, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the leader of the Anglican Church, placed the crown on it, and there was a religious ceremony. I don't think it had much meaning to anybody, but that's a very cynical comment. But that's what it was. That's kind of what this is. Because this is in the context of renewing their commitment to the Lord. They're offering sacrifices to the Lord. This is kind of the religious, spiritual coronation of Saul as king. Privately anointed by Saul, Samuel, excuse me. Publicly anointed by the tribes, which we looked at last week. Now, after this initial victory against the Ammonites under Nahash at Jabesh Gilead, there's now this spiritual religious coronation uh, of Saul as king. It, it's really, these verses 12 through 15 are wonderful verses. They, they exemplify exactly what the Lord wanted for the monarchy. Now, as we get into chapter 13, 14, and 15, Saul quickly begins a downward slide. And we'll get into that in just a minute after we get through Samuel's farewell address. But have I said enough here? Explain it. You understand what's going on? It's really an important section because Saul's off to a great start. We're kind of, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth at all, but we kind of get excited about this. Maybe Saul's going to be okay. Well, don't get your hopes up. And it's, it's just, it's, it's sad in that sense because Saul starts so well here, even giving credit and glory to the Lord. Okay? And, uh, for him to get to that position, that wasn't the method that John had originally selected. I don't believe, was it? That, that he would join the this. This manner. You mean for Saul becoming king? Is that what you mean? Uh, there's something that was lacking here that God wanted. I can't remember what it was. Well, the, there are two things here. Number one is, and you have to go back several chapters, chapter eight, but the people ask for a king just like all the other nations, and we analyzed that and talked about that, their motive for asking the Lord for a king, and in effect actually demanding from Samuel a king, they, they, were, they were sinful motives that did not honor the Lord. So that was not pleasing to the Lord. The second thing to remember is we see that, as I mentioned earlier, with Jacob's blessings of each one of his sons back in chapter 49 of, Gen- of Genesis. That Judah is to be the leader. The scepter will never depart. And Saul is from Benjamin. But so that raises a question, and it then becomes this this is theologically what we do. Then this is the permissive will of God. God is permitting Saul to be king. His perfect will would have been a king at his timing, at his direction from the tribe of Judah. That did not happen. So, 
and I'm, you're, she wants this, we're getting ahead, but we will deal with this much later in this book of 1 Samuel. Can we reach any conclusions as to why God permitted this? If this was not God's perfect will, why did he permit it, his permissive will? Well, he's going to demonstrate to Israel. This is what happens if you allow king who's not after my own heart. What will the consequences be? And so they'll learn a lesson because then, and we'll be reading about this a little bit later. I don't think we'll get to it today, but as, as God begins to pull back his blessing from Saul, he says, Samuel will say, God is going to choose a man after his own heart, which is really an important statement. And what we will talk about that, kind of take that apart, which implies that Saul was not a man after God's own heart. And there's no doubt that that would be true. So, I mean, again, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but this is something that Israel is to learn. And it, it they, they, I don't want to say rarely, but they often do not do things the way the Lord would like them to do in terms of his perfect will. All right, let's look at chapter 12. It's a little bit long, and I'm not going to, I'm going to go through this fairly quickly, but this is Samuel's farewell address. We had learned earlier in chapter 8, Samuel was old. His two sons are very corrupt, which is part of the reason why the people wanted a king. So now remember, they're at Gilgal, as, as we, we read uh, a couple of verses earlier. That's this very sacred place. So who's here? Well, it would be the military leaders. It would be the tribal leaders. It would be the clan leaders, presumably the Levites and others in leadership. So Samuel says to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice, and all that you have said me have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you. I'm old and gray. Now that's a very important statement. Because what this means is the age of the judges is over. Remember, Samuel is the final judge. You, you know what I mean by that, don't you? you know, all the judges from the book of Judges. He's the last judge. The monarchy has begun. So the age of the judges, this is a transitional statement. The period of the judges is over. The monarchy has begun. You know, the king walks before you. I've given you what you ask. The Lord told me to do this, but I'm giving you what you ask. Here's the king. Behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before he's anointed. Now, you, you almost think, well, why, why is he doing this? Because what he's going to do in the next cluster of verses is he's going to, he's going to review his integrity. He's going to say to the people of Israel, I've been a good judge. I've been a man of integrity. I've done everything the Lord wanted me to do. And so, I mean, that's, he's going to be saying, I've been faithful to the Lord. I've been faithful to you. And, uh, and he goes on, whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes? Testify against me and I'll restore it to you. Have any of you as the leaders of Israel ever experienced anything fraudulent or dishonest in my hand? If you have, I'll pay you. And there's silence. They said, you have not defrauded us, oppressed us, or taken anything from man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. 
and has anointed his witness this day that you have found nothing, you found anything in my hand. They said, he is a witness. He's been faithful to the Lord and faithful to God's people. Now, that's again, that sounds a little odd. It almost sounds like he's being self-justifying. He's not. I am, the transition from the period of the judges to the monarchy is now complete. Is there anything I've done wrong against you? Have I defrauded? Have I, have I violated my integrity in any of your law? If you have, tell me, and I'll make it right. I, to me, as I studied this again on Monday, as I was doing it, I thought again, here, here is a man of utmost integrity. And even in these last, presumably last days of his life, he wants to make, is there anything I need to make right? That's integrity, isn't it? I'm at the end, is there anything I've done wrong? I want to make it right before I die. And the people say, no, there is nothing you've done. You've defrauded not. So to me, that is an amazing statement of his integrity. Not only in terms that nobody could in any way testify, that he, he's willing to, if there's anything I've done, I'll make it right. When's the last time you heard a leader talk like that? They're narcissistic, they're self-serving. They could care less. And I'm being very cynical that I shouldn't have done that. But anyway, it's just, it's just, it's just this important epitome of what God wants of his leaders. Leaders are always called to a higher standard. We have forgotten that in so many ways. Then in verse 6 through 11, I'm, I'm going to read this real quickly. And it isn't, a, it, but it's something that every major leader does. What does he do? He reviews God's faithfulness to his people. And verse 6 through verse 11 is simply this. God has been faithful to us. And Simon said to the people, Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron, brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may be with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord they performed for you and your fathers. When Jacob went to Egypt and the Egyptians depressed them, then their fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in the place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hatzor, into the hand of the Philistines, to the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against him. And they cried out to the Lord, We have sinned, but we have forgotten the Lord and have served the Baals and the Astaroth, but he now, now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. This is just summarizing the period of the, of the judges. And he sent Zerubbabel, that's Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. Why does every major leader do that? Reviewing, God has been faithful to us. That wasn't rhetorical. Why, why should leaders especially spiritual leaders, church leaders, etc. But why should leaders review the faithfulness of God? Everybody knows that. They, what he just said, they all knew that. So why is he doing it? It's his legacy. Okay, it's part of the, his legacy? Well, what's the, practical, what's the practical outcome of something like this? If God has been faithful to us in the past, he will be faithful to us in the future. That's why over and over and over again, you say, Ben, if you study the book of Joshua, there are seven memorials built to the Lord in the book of Joshua. 
And everyone would say, when your children ask you, why is this here, Daddy? You tell them the story of God's man. Because <laughs> this is cynical as well. Someone one time many decades ago said, the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. And Samuel has just said, Here's, I'm going to review very broad stroke. I'm going to review our history. Has God been faithful to us? Yes. He will be faithful in the future. And that's important for you and me practically in our lives. Then in verse 12 through 15 is a warning. It's a warning in the language of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And when you saw the hash, the king of the Ammonites crying against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. And the Lord, your God, was our king. Now behold, the king of you have chosen from you, vast behold, the Lord set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his life, voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if you, both you and the king who reigns over you, follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you do not obey the Lord, voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. That's Deuteronomy 28 summarized in two verses. Covenant blessings, covenant curses. The Mosaic covenant, unlike the Abrahamic covenant, which is an unconditional covenant, the Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant. If you want the blessings of the covenant, you must walk in loving obedience with God. That's what he just said. If you do it, God will bless you. If you don't do it, God will be against you. And if you read Deuteronomy 28, it's a long chapter. But the final curse is God will send you into exile. He will take the land that he's given to you, take it from you, and give it to somebody else for a period. And so it's just Samuel is issuing a warning. God's been so faithful to us. But remember, your covenant obligation in the Mosaic Covenant is to walk in loving obedience with him, obey his command. If you don't, he will discipline you. Is that true New Testament today? The new covenant is an unconditional covenant. If you experience salvation, you're justified, declared righteous. But if you do not walk in loving obedience with the Lord, he will discipline you. So the question is yes. Different covenants. Is that true of a nation as well as an individual? Well, the United States or any country in Europe or any country in the world is not in an unconditional covenant relation with the Lord. We're not like Israel. We do not have an unconditional covenant relationship with the Lord. Well, Israel, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing, unconditional blessing. I'm giving you land. That's your land. It's your covenant land. It's yours. And in all eternity, it will be yours. God has not entered into an unconditional covenant relationship with you and with America as a nation. You and I individually, it's called the new covenant. But there's no, we, America is not the covenant people of God like the Jews are. The Jews are the only, the Israeli ethnic Jews are the only covenant people of God. I mean, as a nation. Individuals in America have a, if they trusted Christ, have a new covenant, unconditional new covenant relationship with God. But America as a country doesn't. Can, how do we speak to that as a nation as a whole um, in terms of our righteousness as a people of America? 
But we're not a righteous nation or people, so we can't speak to it. Well, we can't speak to it for the very reason is... Well, the only way, again, I mean, this just bothers me a little bit when I hear some people talk. We are not in a covenant relationship as a nation. People are in terms of the new covenant. But God laid down, Let's. Uh, this is an original way to put it with me, but it's the right way to put it. God's common grace principles, Roman Catholic Church calls it natural law, but God's common grace principles are, even if you're an unbeliever and you follow God's moral law, there's common grace blessings with that. If you don't follow them, there are, there are the common grace judgments, because it's part of God's grace, uh, on, on you. And that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 1, 18 through 32. If you reject God's revelation, it begins a downward spiral. And, and what... America had now again. When when you talk like this, you have to talk about individual people. But as individual people who make up a nation, if even if they're not believers, they follow the common grace moral laws of God. There's just that's the way God made His world. He will just bless in common grace blessing. But if individuals reject all of that, and that's the danger of our postmodern world, where our personal autonomy is the chief ethic. Every, that's, that's the chief ethic, personal autonomy. Don't tell me. You have no right to tell me what I should do or what I shouldn't do. You have no right to sit in any evaluation of anything I do. I am the captain of my own ship. So, therefore, and many studies, the millennial generation and the generation coming up the Gen Z's, they are not committed to institutions. And if they're not committed to institutions, that also means they're not committed to the church as an institution, which means they're not going to be committed to any, any kind of institution of moral authority in their lives. And, and just to me, common sense type, that's not a good thing. I'm committed to the defense of the country. No, yeah. I'm committed to the defense of the border. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, it's just, it's everything, you know, I have a book that I just finished reading on all the generations because of our church and the things we're dealing with. But anyway, when you see that, the millennial and Gen Z generation, they have no expectation from institutions because they don't trust institutions. They just don't trust them, and that includes the church. <laughs> You know, and I'm just saying all that because that, if that is, and it is, if that's the case, then that means God's common grace blessings are not going to follow. Because if everybody doing what is right in their own eyes, that is moral as well as spiritual and really ultimately political chaos and disorder. And that's, that is what we're seeing in our country right now. It's a it's this this quest for personal autonomy, and therefore this lack of commitment and trust in institutions leads to the moral disorder that you see all around us, which then naturally results in political disorder. Which I mean, where we are right now is comparable to the 1850s, as the country uh, over the issue of slavery and the expansion of slavery into the territories was getting farther and farther to the point there was no middle. There was no possibility of compromise. And the two sides are getting rigid and rigid and rigid and more and more fortified and farther and farther apart. 
So when Abraham Lincoln is elected as president in 1860 and takes office in 1861, what happened? The nation explodes. Seven nations secede from the Union, eventually 11 will secede from the Union, and of course you have the tragic Civil War. Nobody wants a Civil War, and I'm not saying we're headed toward a Civil War necessarily, where you've got people seceding from the nation, but what you have is this, everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, and it's creating this disorder and chaos. That's what happened in Israel. Covenant people of Israel that we just finished studying. And what God keeps saying to us, and he says it to the people of Israel, I want to give you a shepherd king to shepherd you in righteousness and justice. And King David is going to do this marvelously. And to an extent, no, not completely, but to an extent, so will his son, Solomon. But then when Solomon dies in 931 B.C., what happens to the nation? Splits in two. And all those good things are gone. And the ten tribes of the north that form the nation of Israel, that's a separate country, that's the nation that will deteriorate. Not one good king, not one righteous king at all in the north. Judah remains loyal to God's Vedic monarchy. But they're not going to have great kings either. Got good ones like Jehoshaphat and Asa and, and Hezekiah and Josiah, good kings. But they're still going to go out of existence because of what Samuel said. If you walk in, if you walk in loving obedience to the Lord, in this covenant reigns no blessing. Okay. That's his warning. Now, therefore, Stand, see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is not your wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain that you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you've done inside the Lord and asking yourselves a king. So it's time you called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and sent. Why in the world did the Lord do that? Okay, obviously you didn't hear that question, so I'll repeat it. Why in the world did the Lord do this? Samuel says, Lord send thunder, and the Lord sends it. Why would he do that? Get their attention. Get their attention. Samuel's very explicit. This is the wheat harvest. The one thing you don't want is a massive thunderstorm that's going to ruin the wheat harvest. I mean, you know what I mean. You're, we come from a farming. You know what he's saying here. But God sends it. It is a reminder. Who's a real king is. Yahweh Elohim of Israel. That's the covenant name of God. Yahweh Elohim of Israel. He's still their leader. And even though now the monarchy has begun and, and all that we have talked about will continue to talk about. It's just a, an important reminder. And you know, one of the things that I've, I've, I've learned in studying scripture is that God does often use weather and the natural world to get our attention. That works pretty good. It does, doesn't it? I'm just throwing this out on the table for you to think about. Is there a possibility that God is maybe trying to get our attention today? There's been a lot of things that have been happening worldwide, you know. Just wondering, well, that's, that's too convicting, so let's move on. Verse 19. We're just about done now. And all the people said to Samuel, 
Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. We've added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said, do not be afraid. You've done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Now, so what you see here, it's, it's quite marvelous. There's this public confession of the motive for wanting a king. That's what God's interested in. We want to be like all the other nations. The Moabites and the Canaanites and the Phoenicians and all. We want to be like them. Give us a king. Now, all that Samuel said and what God did in this storm and so on, it's gotten their attention. And there's this public confession in verse 19. And then, God, then Samuel, as the prophet, he's prophet, judge, and priest, as a prophet, he says, now listen, God's taking care of this. But here's your responsibility. Don't turn aside from following the Lord. It's that covenant language again. And then verse 21. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot proffer deliver for they're empty. Empty things is a reference to what? Idolatry. Because the Hebrew word there, empty, is vain. It's often translated from after vain things, something that's vain, vanity, empty. It's empty. It's nothing. So you could paraphrase it and do not turn aside after nothings that cannot profit or deliver for they're nothing. You could actually paraphrase that that way. That's what that word means. Do not turn aside after nothings. Don't follow nothings, which is what idolatry is. It's just a piece of stone or a piece of wood. It's nothing. It's not going to do anything for you. Verse 22. Now, this is the language of the Abrahamic covenant. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for yourself. That's the sum of the Abraham. This is the unconditional, unilateral covenant of God with the Jewish people. No other nation on earth has this covenant with and that's what God says. I will discipline. It says that in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. I'll discipline you. I'll even send you into exile. But then what's the next sentence? But I will bring you back. And you and I are living right now. You are alive and I are living in an age where God has brought it. Well, I should put it in a present continuous text. God is bringing his people back to the land. For the first time since 70 A.D., the largest concentration of Jewish people on planet Earth is now in Israel. It had been in the United States. Because the United States opened its borders and allowed so many Jewish people from Europe to come in. Now there are more Jewish people living. It's close to 9 million is their population now. That's a miracle, man. That's an absolute miracle of God. Because 100 years ago, the Jewish people had no homeland. They had nowhere to go. But the Holocaust convinced the world we've got to provide a homeland for the Jewish people because they've had centuries and centuries and centuries of pogroms and persecution. And so, you know, you know the story, 1948 and all that. I'm saying all that because this, they are his people and he is going to fulfill this covenant promise to them. They are never going to be annihilated. Satan tried it. Satan tried it when, when, when in the book of Esther with Haman. Haman wanted to extinguish the Jewish people on earth. And you know the story. 
God, you see that there, throughout history, Satan has tried to annihilate the Jewish people. And of course, the monumental example is, of course, Hitler. Didn't work. He killed a third of the Jewish people, but he didn't annihilate them. Now they're thriving. And that's, you know, I don't, I can't do, prove this in a sense, but what is really behind what Hamas did is satanic evil. It really is. That's what's in back of this, satanic evil. And it's the same thing. Hamas is acting like ISIS did. As you remember those things that were covered a couple years ago. But God is not going to allow them. Because, and again, you just see this. You're my people. You're my covenant people. Verse 23, moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord. Serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Back to verse 6 through 11. It's a fantastic farewell address. He does everything a judge and a prophet should do. And he's not going to die quite yet. We'll see when he passes away a little bit later on. But this is kind of the culmination of this transition from the period of the judges to the monarchy. It's now complete. It's over. The monarchy is now officially uh, begun. All right? Online, everybody okay? Yep. Doing good. Thank you. Okay. Now listen, I want to give you the big picture overview. Chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15 is the three-step downward fall of Saul. It's going to occur in three steps, in three stages, three developments. And it's tragic. As we work our way through this, we're going to get started. We won't finish it, but we're going to get started. I want you to be thinking with me about this question. I posed it a, a little bit ago. What is primarily, what is the character flaw of Saul? Right. Yeah, I, I don't want to answer that yet. I, I just, I, I want to pose that question. I want you to process it with me. Because pride is, is I think there's some deeper things here we want to try to surface. What, primarily, what is the character flaw of Saul? Because I, I told you when we started this study, I'm not only interested in doing the historical and, and, and expositional study, I want to use this as a character study, too. We, we, did a, we did the character study of Samuel. We start with his mother, Hannah, and all the wonderful things, and we just saw again his farewell address. We're going to analyze now the character of Saul. And I think it, it's, it's going to be important for us to see this because every one of us has a character flaw. That's just the nature of our sin. What we need is, in, in terms of the new covenant, we need the Holy Spirit who comes into our lives at a point of salvation to help deal with these characteristics in our life. Did you mention verse 25 in the last chapter? Sorry. Um, I think so. I probably missed, I missed a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, a, a summary of, of, again, the statement of the covenant. If you do so wickedly, you'll be swept away both you and your king. 
It's just, again, it's the statement of what he had said in the previous paragraph. All right, so now here, here, here we are, we're going to get started with this. Step number one in the fall of Saul is chapter 13. And what is going to happen is God is going to reject Saul's son being king. Putting it another way, none of Saul's sons are going to inherit the monarchy. Saul will be the last king of the Kish dynasty, of the Saul dynasty. Now that's very, that's very, that would have been very piercing for Saul. Why, why does God do that? Why does God take away the, the right of his son, which is a normal thing. David's son will be king. What, why? That's what we want to find. What happened? What's wrong here? What does Saul do that displeases the Lord? Where's the character flaw coming to the surface? Oh, did, did, uh, this is the question. Did, did, did God promise Saul that his king? There was no promise. There was no promise to anybody at this point yet. But the assumption was, well, as you know, in around them, so. in, 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 in the ancient world at that time, you're, you're the king is king. You're establishing a dynasty. His sons and his grandsons. Said, that's just a natural way. But God is going to say, "Don't make that assumption. You're cut off. Your sons will not be king." Why? Now, there is chapter uh, uh, thirteen, verse one. There's a little bit of a problem here because. The manuscripts are all over the place. So your translation probably had, so Sam or Saul was blank years old. He began to reign and reign blank two years. The, the help with this is Acts chapter 13, verse 21, where this is a, an address by, uh, by, by Peter. But he says, Saul reigned for 40 years. So the thought is that this helps us. Saul becomes king when he's 40, and he rules for almost 42 years. He will die on Mount Gilboa when he's eight, almost 82 years old. So we can, we can substitute what's missing because of other revelation in the New Testament. And that's not a big deal. I just We know this because of other parts of Scripture. When Saul becomes king, he's 40. He will rule for a little over 40 years. Does it matter? Mine says 30 would make it 72. I don't know about 10 years. Is that it's probably, he's probably almost 80, 80, between 80 and 82 when he's killed on Mount Gobal. Yeah, well, mine doesn't even say that. It's all, it's all rain one year. That's mine. I'm trying to avoid a discussion about this because it, it, it's, it's, it's part of the manuscript that we have you can't settle on these numbers. So what we do is we go to the New Testament. What does the New Testament tell us? It tells us. So is that okay that we don't? Yeah. It's just kind of weird how it's all the one year. What's that? Yeah, I mean, that's weird. Like yeah, that, no, that, just, it, that doesn't work. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people are sent home, every man to his tent. What is going on here? Now, the text is going to explain some of this in a minute. Here, let me give you, because we're going to run out of time, we're only going to get started. Israel is, this happens over and over again. Israel is being invaded by the Philistines. 
Now, incidentally, and somewhat ironically, the Philistines were from Gath, from, from Gaza. One of the towns on that strip was Gaza. That's why it became known as Gaza. But Gath, who will be from the city of Gath? Goliath is from Gath. So these are all the cities of the Philistines. They've invaded Israel. The strategy of the Philistines is always to split Israel in half, split the tribes in half, and then conquer them one by one. So they're doing it again. Okay, Saul's the king. So what does he do? He's going to do uh, try to do a defensive and, and hopefully a, a, an offensive attack against the Philistines. So he organizes men. And you can see in, if, you're, if you want to do this, you don't have to, but if you want to, on page 7, there is a map. And they have a little enlargement of the Battle of Michmash. And that, if you're interested, you can look at it. So Saul has gathered 2,000 men at Michmash, and his son, Jonathan, has 1,000 down in Gibeah. I told you this before. Gibeah is Saul's hometown. It's the capital city of the, of the monarchy. The rest of the people are sent home. Now, what do you see? Verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines, that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, But the Hebrews hear, and all Israel heard it, and said Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had become a stench of the Philistines, and the people called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Now, what's the problem with the people's conclusion? Saul didn't do it. Who did do it? His son, Jonathan. So what you see here, now, now don't miss this. Read again. 2,000 were Saul at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. 1,000 were Jonathan. Who acts? Who takes the leadership to act against the Philistines? Saul or Jonathan? Jonathan does it. Jonathan's the one who takes the action. Jonathan's the one who takes his thousand men and acts against the Philistines. What did the people conclude? Saul did it. Now, the text is simply telling us that Saul holds back and Jonathan acts. That's a very important fact from this brief paragraph. Saul has three about 2,000 men. Jonathan has 1,000 men. Which one acts? Jonathan does. Maybe he was attacked. Doesn't say that. It says he defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And it's, it, he's defeated, so that means he is attacking that garrison. The garrison isn't attacking him. Well, I, I know, but the, the point, whether that detail is important or not, the point is Jonathan is the one who leads. But the people who sold it. So the Philistines then mustered to fight with Israel. This is verse 5. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore. That's a very formidable army. It's including chariots, horses. Israel doesn't have chariots and horses. They came up and encamped at Michmash. That's near where Saul is, to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people hard-pressed, look at this. The people hid themselves in caves, in holes, in rocks, in tombs, in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. In other words, they flee across the Jordan. They go east. So 
this this strategy of the Philistines. Okay, we lost some men to Jonathan. Their response is a massive response of thousands of men, chariots and horses. And how did the people respond? They run. They hide. And gave you all the places they hide, caves, holes, rocks, tombs, cisterns, and the rest of them run across the Jordan River or on the east side of the Jordan in the land grant of Gad and Gilead up, up north. Saul was still at Gilgal. And all the people followed him, trembling. So Saul goes from Michmash down to Gilgal, that holy site. I talked about that earlier. That's where Samuel gathered everybody together at Valley Forge, Gettysburg, kind of place that was just a part of their history. And people followed him in confidence, believing in the leadership of Saul. Is that what it says? No, trembled. He trembled. So Saul is facing a very significant dilemma. The Philistines have mustered a very significant army, including chariots and horses, which Israel doesn't have that at all. Second, the people have run. They're either hiding in caves or they've fled across the Jordan River. Now, these are the, the regular people. It's not, they're not part of the army. Well, I, I think it's both and. It's, it's, both some, it's, it's the general people in this area because of the Philistines, because they're hiding. Not, let's listen. Another way of putting this is they no longer feel safe. They no longer feel that Saul is protecting them. And that, I mean, obviously... If you see thousands and thousands of chariots and horses coming toward your area, you're probably going to run. And that's what they do. But this is the point, though. Saul is at Gilgal, and everybody's afraid. What's Saul going to do? Men, this is a test of his leadership. What does Saul do? If you want to know the answer to that question, you've got to come back next week. Isn't this great? It's like a soap opera. I mean, you, hang, you just can't wait for class next week to find out what happened. That's probably not true. But anyway, it, it, this, is, this is really a very critical point. Is Saul going to be the leader God is calling him to be? We'll answer that question next week. I want to start with verse 8. Okay? All right, nobody said okay, so I'm assuming your silence means it's okay. But I'm going to pray, and then I'll let you go here. I need to get going as well. Father, we want to be reminded of what Saul, excuse me, what Samuel said in his farewell address as he just reviewed the faithfulness of God to his people, Israel. He summarized, he went through hundreds of years of history in just a cluster of a few verses. Lord, we in our own personal lives need to just be reminded, has God been faithful to me in the past? Every one of us in this room and those guys online, we should be able to answer, yes, he's been faithful. 
My God has been a faithful, loyal God to me. If that's true, that means he will be faithful to us in the future. There's nothing too great for you. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, Paul says in the book of Philippians. We are men who walk not by sight, we walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says. We're men of faith. Because you have been faithful, we know you will be faithful to us in the future. Therefore, we will be faithful to you. Help us to be men of integrity like Samuel was. No one had anything to say against him. He wanted to set all things right. No one had anything. He was a man of great integrity. May we be men of integrity. May we be the men that you call us to be, to represent you in this world. May we be the kind of fathers and grandfathers, leaders in our businesses or in our homes or in our neighborhoods, wherever we, we continue to have responsibilities, because we represent you. We want to do that well to the glory of God. We pray all of this. Amen. See you next week.